Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we are talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So, you first. What's astonishing me you? first. Well, what is astonishing me and what I'm preaching uh, connect, and so I'll, I'll talk about both of those. Um, I am astonished by the truth that I already know, but it's it's coming back to me again as I study the text for this week. It's the truth that Jesus will, on purpose, I guess Jesus does all things on purpose. He does nothing by accident. But the truth that Jesus will ask me, ask us to do things that he knows we can't do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And our default when we realize, when we understand, when we get some clarity about what the Lord is asking us to do, and we realize that we in ourselves do not have the resources to do that thing, mm-hmm. our default is to immediately look for a plan B. Or someone to blame. Or someone to blame, yes. But yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. I see this in myself. I see it in the church. We look for a plan B, and this Sunday I'm preaching uh, the feeding of the 5,000, right, where Jesus mm-hmm. says, uh, mm-hmm. well, the disciples go to Jesus, it's getting late, we need to send these crowds away, and Jesus says, you feed them. We only have mm-hmm. five loaves of bread, two fish, and, um, and Jesus says, bring them to me. And so what I want to do with the text, I think, is to say that in the school of Christ, what he's teaching us here and in all of the circumstances of my life and ministry where I encounter the situation where I don't have resources to do the thing I know the Lord is is calling me to do, the, the teaching here, the training is to know that plan A through Z is always to turn to Jesus. And I know that's really simple, but I... I don't have that locked down yet in well, my own discipleship. And just because something is possible doesn't mean that we'll do it, right? I mean, why? I mean, because why we turn away? And because I think you know, it's one of those places where like people love to quote Philippians four thirteen, but what they're saying in that context is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But it's not in the sense of I can. I, you know, I can be part of Christ feeding the 5,000. Mm-hmm. It's in the sense of like, I have a dream. I have a plan. There's something yes. I think I deserve. And Christ is going to strengthen me to I get what I want. I can do all the things I, I want to do. do. Yes. Right. And and so we love to claim that verse mm-hmm. when it comes to fulfilling mm-hmm. our personal manifest yes. destiny. And I use that term very specifically. <laughs> when I'm trying to live my best life now. When I'm trying to say that what I want is what God wants for me, and damn whoever gets in my way or who gets hurt, they don't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So we think that Philippians 4.13 means Christ will help me with my manifest destiny, but when there's a clear call on our life to do something that's beyond our own power, nobody wants Philippians 4.13 then, right? right. Nobody wants to say, oh, Mm -hmm. this our church has a mission or a ministry that's beyond our reach, beyond our power, beyond our resources, but we can do this thing through the Christ in us, and we go... 
eh, mm. but I don't want to accidentally waste my five loaves and two fishes, right? Yes. Like, I don't want to waste what I have in case Jesus doesn't come through. Like, I'd rather do this thing that seems more reasonable or more achievable, and I will dedicate it to Jesus. That's right. But I'm mm. not, you know, I, I don't want to look yeah. stupid, and I don't want to look powerless. Well, and, mm-hmm. and the other thing that what Jesus seems to be teaching us in the text is unless and until we lean into that thing that is impossible for us, unless we turn to him, we will not see him show up in the kind of power and, um, uh, well, she's use the word power, that he wants to show up in our lives in the church. Well, and I think that story that you're preaching is such a, it's such a great um, lens for us to use when we think about this because we think, well, how am I going to feed the 5,000? We say like, no, no, no. The the role of the faithful person is played by the little child. Again, I consistency. Think, I think we're using the Matthew text. Okay, well, that's wrong. You should use okay. the John text. But, I mean, the role yeah. of the faith, I mean, the thing that is asked of us to do is absolutely what we can do, right? Yes. We are it, asked to give what we have, yeah. right? And in the Matthew version, Jesus simply tells the disciples to start passing out what they have. Just pass out what you have. Mm -hmm. And we just say, because what I have can't meet the can't meet the thing I'm called to do because Mm -hmm. my power isn't sufficient to do what I believe you're calling me to do. I'm not going to do my part, right? I'm not going to do my part because I don't trust you to do your part, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to do my part because I reject your authority over my life, Mm. which is the bottom line. And I, because, so it's interesting, what is astonishing me this week is um, we, on New Year's um, Eve, a really beloved elder in, in the best sense of elder, um, meaning a spiritual leader, a well of living water at, at, at the grove, um, died. And um, he, I think I spoke about him on this podcast before, David Hicks. We played, he had ALS, which had progressed rapidly, rapidly over the past months. And his, his greatest mourning in that is that it um, limited his mobility. So he, he really couldn't come and be part of the community physically. And he couldn't serve, right? And that was his big mourning. And, and what he had found that he could do, even as this ALS was robbing his ability to to use his legs is that he would wheel his wheelchair over to his piano and he had begun teaching himself by ear to play piano again because he just used what he could to put beauty in the world for you know it was just anyway such a witness and he and he died on new year's eve and the community is um just grieving that loss and celebrating his life and we gathered for his um his memorial service, his homegoing service, and it was beautiful to see the people who showed up um, and people that, I mean, I I loved David and I knew the power of the witness of his life, but I did not know um, how how far it had spread, you know? And um, I think the, the week before in worship, because David's one of the things he did at the Grove um, that he was so um, just beautifully consistent about was he would greet people at the door. Um, and even when he went into a facility for a while and they had chapel services there, he said, I'm going to, in my wheelchair, I'm going to stand at the door. I'm going to greet people oh, there, right? Great. He just was so, um, he so understood that to see someone 
and to spend time with them and listen to them and to want to know them. I mean, he just sincerely, authentically wanted to know anyone that the Lord allowed him to cross paths with. And it was so interesting to see the number of people who showed up for this that um, for his memorial service and the week before in worship, I asked the congregation if you, if David Hicks was the first person who greeted you when you came to the Grove, because he would stand at the door where people who are visitors come in, because those, if you're from the Grove, you kind of come up through the back way. But if you, he would stand on that front door. So if people were coming for the first time, they they would see David first, and and half the congregation stood up. So it was amazing mm. to see just the. How, how the impact you know, the impact and yeah. again as a pastor and we were saying this earlier that I don't care who a pastor is I don't care how much they love the Lord I don't care how gifted and talented they are pastors alone cannot transform churches right yes and so I mean there are role there was a role that I needed to play there was repenting that I needed to do there was learning I needed to do that you know but it didn't matter except that there were elders in the community who were all in to doing what they could do. And David mm. knew that what he could do was come up in his embodied That's self great. and look people in the eye and say to them, I am so glad you're here. I am David Hicks. I would like to, I mean, you know, and mean it and mean it. That's great. And it was so interesting that people came to his memorial service. And and often when you, as, as we are, um, are privileged to um, celebrate people's lives mm. at the moment of death and and announce just the glorious promise of resurrection and you, and so you see people's legacies all the time and 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 there is no life that cannot be celebrated right so comparisons are odious but often you see if someone dies at whatever point in their life they die the the community that gathers to worship them will often be filled with people of that age, right? Yes. That that's what you will see. So young people tend to, you know, because people tend to make friends with their peers. Mm-hmm. And if you die and you are black, the people who primarily show up to work, you know, tend to be mm-hmm. black, white, mm-hmm. white. That's mm-hmm. how it works. So David's funeral, people of every generation of you know, white and black coming together. People were coming to me, reaching out to me, and when is the service? People that I didn't know, mm. really, he knew. I mean, people that had been connected to the Grove through Freedom School, through the dance ministry, that he had made a point of always, you know, there was just nobody who it wasn't worth his time and attention to know, to be in relationship with. And it was funny because I was talking to this one young woman that I just love who was our Freedom School director for several years. And she said, you know, I thought I was the only one. Like, I thought it was (laughs) me. And she said, and then I realized, like, it was him. Like, this is just who he was. And what was astonishing to me is that David's legacy was so powerful. And he did not do anything that anybody couldn't do. It's a it's very just, simple act. Right. But most of us just choose mm-hmm. not to, right? Like we just think like, I could go and greet that newcomer, but 
I don't really want to know them. They don't really want to know me. It won't really make a difference. So I'll go to the committee meeting instead. Or I'll, you know, like we don't choose to do the things that we have the power to do that God calls us to do because we don't think that they in and of themselves have the power to do anything that really matters in the kingdom of God. So we And because we note their weakness and we think that's just the end of the story, right? So we want to go and like connect ourselves to like city leaders and like hook into some political problem. Like we want to do something that we think has the power in its own self to get something done. And we neglect the way of the kingdom, which is Jesus saying, you know, in your weakness, I am strong, right? Mustard and so, seed. Correct. Like, you know, the little boy in John who says, here's my five loaves and two fishes. Mm-hmm. Without Jesus, that's a joke. But with Jesus, it feeds the 5,000. David, you know, in his 80-year-old white insurance salesman body standing at the door of a church that is trying to become a multi-ethnic church, like in and of itself, that is just weakness. That is just foolishness. That is just a joke. But when the power of Christ is in it, it is transformative and God does a great work through it that can only be credited to God. But because we are not willing to serve in our weakness, we don't see the legacy that we could have. Like every single one of us could have the impact and the legacy of David Hicks if we believed like he did that there was no better way to spend my time than honoring the Christ in other people and serving them and welcoming them and greeting them. But we're just not willing to do the simple things that the world despises. Like we want to meet powerful people, sure, important people, People who are like us, anyway. So that well, it's a it's a reminder. Um, <laughs> well, so often we think because I can't do everything, I will do nothing. Right, or we think the thing that I can't do is the thing that would be necessary. Mm-hmm. So the thing that I can do doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, right? So like I'll say, oh, I'll pray for you, but I don't. Mm-hmm. Or like I could come and be part of this Bible study, but what does one more Bible study matter? So I won't. I could follow up with this person, but it wouldn't really make a difference. So I won't. And so then we spend our whole lives grasping for the ability to do things that God hasn't called us to do and neglecting and miss the simple the thing that, that God wants to use to do the when big thing. We just thing. won't do it, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. and so I... Yeah, I just was astonished and in awe of David's legacy, but I think so many people were, and rightly so, but I just think it's so important to demystify that and say, you know, what David wanted to say, like, it's not that he was some supernatural, saintly person. It was that he took the life that God had given him to live, and he rejected any excuse to be faithful, not be faithful, right? So, like, we're all committed to being a part of a, a, a worshiping community, but, like, there are lots of Sundays where we're like, oh, I'm not going to go because hmm. it won't really matter to me and it won't really matter to anybody else. I mean, you know, like, we just, we don't do the things that we can do because we've decided they won't matter. All right, now I've said this 19 times, so I'll let it go. But I, I just um, am just incredibly, incredibly astonished at how the Lord will sanctify the lives of people who have fully surrendered to him. Mm, and, that's good. And I, you know, and I, I, I want to do likewise, right? And I want, like, that salt and light. And I think the, the good news of the gospel and the double-edged sword of the gospel is Jesus is sufficient. Yeah. So if it's not happening, the problem is probably you. Mm. Whew. Let the ushers come to receive the offering. 
as the band starts to play just as I am. <laughs> uh, what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? I, you know, I'm still stuck in our conversation from last week um, podcast about uh, 2020. I've been thinking about the books that I want to read this year. And um, I've got three that are at the top of my list. I have to read these three books this year. Of course, there are others, but these are my top three. Um, I just purchased, this will be a total surprise. Wait, uh, wait, wait. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I am going to make three guesses, and the first two don't count, and say, this is a book by N.G. Wright. What? Oh, how I did know you, you guess? I know you. I, how did you I guess? I know you. Um, yeah, well, and you know what? When I first started to encounter N.T. Wright, I also encountered a lot of voices from our friends who would call themselves um, reformed and conservative. Mm-hmm. And their voices were uh, warning about N.T. Wright. So, oh, he's a liberal. Um, he doesn't believe in justification, um, and and so at first I was I was a little a little weary because there was such um, there was such criticism of right, and then I started to listen to him and read him, and I began to understand that what he's doing is, please forgive the nerdy Star Wars. Oh, reference, geez. but he's I will he, not. he's seeking to bring balance to the force. I mean, he's he is neither a conservative nor is he a liberal. He's very moderate, and what he does in his writings is he says, "Hey, you folks over here, you've gone too far in this direction. Let's pull it back. You have gone too far in this direction, not because um, of his own um, 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 Likes, yes, but it's it's his understanding of both history and the text, and uh, he's been very helpful to me. So uh, there's another scholar from um, Australia, Michael Bird, and he had this idea to take N.T. Wright's writings, all of his various writings, and to have someone summarize them in one book, um, and to make it a introduction to the New Testament. And so that was recently published. Oh, interesting. It's very good. First of all, it's probably the most beautiful book I own. It's just in terms of pictures, illustrations. It is the introduction to the New Testament that I wish I had 20 plus years ago. It is fabulous. What's it called? um, The New Testament in its world. So, Mm. you know, N.T. Wright's lane seems to be, let's understand the New Testament in its context, in this Roman Jewish context. How, 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 what would it mean, what did it mean to talk about the kingdom or talk about Messiah? And so he's been very helpful to me. And um, we've got some folks in our church family who have started to read N.T. Wright as well. And uh, so uh, that's, that's at the top of my list. It's, it's a thick book, but since our theme this year as a church is um, it's all about Jesus, I think it's just going to be a great companion um, uh, in our 
teaching and preaching and walking through the Gospels. We're reading through the four Gospels as a, as a church uh, this year. And so, um, yeah, it's well, going to be... Can I just pause and what? say, Uh-oh. A, I'm going to order that book. But B, you know, last year at the Grove, we had a, a Word of the Year, and it was small. And I, you know, we did a... Um, we did a worship series on like the holiness of small things. And I sort of confessed that I struggled with the word because of whatever you can find that little podcast if you want to. But so, um, I didn't, we had a word of the year at the Grove. I well, didn't yeah. use it very well or consistently. What's your word this year? Well, that's a thing. People came up to me and they're like, what's the word this year? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't really heard anything and I haven't really been consistently inquiring of mm. the Lord about it. Um, Whatever, like mea culpa. People are like, "Well, I bet Yolando has a word of the year," and I'm like, "No, okay. no, 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 they did not no, say no, that. They did. They straight up did." But and I'm like, "Yeah, he has a word of the year, but I mean, it's Jesus." So I well, mean, like that's fine and all, but I'm saying like big stretch, right? Like, okay, ours is gonna be Jesus too. All right, are you happy? We're done. Anyway. Of, of course, but you know, no, no, as a, I mean, as it totally makes sense. About Jesus. But I was just laughing yes. at the idea of like, what? Anyway, sorry. Well, no, I. Gosh, then I really um, now I want to order that book, so my husband will not be happy with you. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's it's a little pricey. I think it it gets close to. Fifty dollars, I think. But I mean, the idea of being able to use it as like a, a resource text in terms yes. of yeah, that's really mm-hmm, helpful. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Because um, yeah. often I do think there there are people I particularly like, um, like Hauerwas, like um, I mean, obviously Brueggemann. You mm-hmm. know, they've just written so much mm-hmm. that it would be nice to yes. be able to have an index of it specifically connected to biblical texts because I. I'm a biblical theologian, so I don't really, yes. I don't really care what you think, Bubba, unless you're saying, yes. <laughs> here's, Bubba. here's the scripture text that Bubba. really. Yeah. Well, and um, this book is giving you history and like right. summaries of you know books, New Testament theology. I just think it's gonna, it's a, it's a great resource. Oh, really so, nice. and there are companion DVDs if you want to use it as a study for your small group, which some in our church are thinking about, which is making me very, very happy. Um, A a second book, the second book I want to read uh, this year, and it's on my desk at home. It's been sitting there for a while, and I've got to read it. It's by um, Rachel Held Evans, uh, her book Inspired, Mm -hmm. right? Because we know that the Bible is not an instruction manual. It is not... um, it's a, holy a rule revelation. book, yes, yep. it is inspired. But what do we mean by that? Yeah. And so, just the title alone has um, captivated me. And uh, she, if I remember, she grew up or moved to. Well, she grew up the in town, scopes. the scopes Monkey town. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, in that town. And so, that's a pretty unique perspective. And my my understanding, I, I hope I'm right about this, is that as Americans, as American Christians, we tend to talk about these issues in a way. People in other parts of the world don't. don't. That this gets so mixed up in our politics and our left and our right and, and our and our and cultural and, war yeah. stuff. And so I'm, I'm interested in, I'm excited about reading this book. And well, and I appreciate that because I, I think I've said this to you before. I think that most men I know do not read books written by women. Mm. And that's problematic in general, but particularly for male pastors to not be interested in how um, I will speak as an American Christian woman and how growing up as an American woman affects your understanding of 
what it means to be a disciple of who Jesus is, how the purity culture has messed with your head. How, I mean, like, if you want to pastor yeah. women, yeah. but you only ever hear the voices of men, then yes. you can't do that very well. And you never, basically, by letting that be your worldview and to the extent that you talk about what you're reading and it's never the, it, it is never any women's thoughts, then you don't intend to, but you very unsubtly communicate to women in your congregation that they there is nothing happening in their lives that is edifying to the body of Christ. And that their voices don't matter. Correct. That God's not doing anything with them. That I their job is to get in line. And when I was in seminary, I took a preaching class, sat down first day of preaching class, got the syllabus, looked at the list of books we would be studying for that class. Not a single one written by an African-American. Yep. I raised my hand and I said, you know, this this is a problem. And um, uh, the professor said something like, well, don't really know any resources. Oh, and I'm like, look, if African-American Christians <laughs> know about either, we know how to preach. And so it's not that those voices didn't exist. It's that the professor was telling you that there was nothing worthy Yes, in that yes. experience. There was no and wisdom yes. in that community. There was nothing And edifying. so I think for many Christians, they're just not hearing the voices of, mm-hmm. of women, especially women in ministry. And so we've, yes, so, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm excited to read But I just think book. like as a, as a female preacher, if I acknowledge Rachel Hollis Evans, people are like, oh, of course, right? Because of course, you, yes. you know, in the same way that if you acknowledge yeah. a black yeah. theologian, yeah. people would be like, oh, of course, you, yeah. it's meaningful yeah. to you because yeah. you're black. Yeah. But when I, as a white person, mm-hmm. say, like, Howard Thurman is mm-hmm. a major influencer on my mm-hmm. thought, then what I'm communicating to people is, A, we're the body of Christ. That's right. And that That's I right. am incomplete and insufficient without right. this voice mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. okay, so Angie Wright, Rachel Hald Evans. And um, a favorite preacher of mine, um, Oklahoma City. Uh, Bridgeway Community Church, Sam Storms. And again, this is another book that's been sitting on my desk for a couple of months now. And uh, it's a book on uh, speaking in tongues. And this guy is so interesting to me because he is a a PhD um, and and a reformed theologian. Mm -hmm. And yet he is so... um, in and embracing uh, the charismatic movement that he is, I think he's just a good balance of mm-hmm. head and heart and um, um, practice. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really interested in reading this uh, book uh, because not just for me um, and my own discipleship, um, but our congregation, this historically white congregation is now surrounded uh, by an African-American context that is much more open to the supernatural and the miraculous, and I would even go as far as to say has a hunger for that. Right. I mean, I, I just think, like, you don't have to be a PhD with, in sociology to be able to say, look, it is interesting to note the branches of the body of Christ who have no interest in supernatural in the supernatural realm or the supernatural power, mm-hmm. even as they claim to worship a supernatural God. <laughs> right. A God who became man and was raised from the dead, right? With no interest in the supernatural having any connection to our lives right now, tend to be the people for whom the current powers and principalities are working very well for, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the people for whom the current powers and principalities, the current systems, the empire works against are saying like, oh, 
I need another source of power mm-hmm. because what the world offers me, I don't have access to. It's not, I mean, it's just so interesting to look what an indictment it is for not to be critical, not to want to sort of say, let's think about how this might be, you know, being exploited or being misused. Like that is fine. That's just wisdom. But the people who dismiss it out of hand yes. are just, I mean, it, it has so much more to do with their social location mm-hmm. than to any theological rationale that they mm-hmm. might justify mm-hmm. it by. And so, mm-hmm. now that's very interesting. Yes. Well, um, so what are you thinking about? I, it's funny. I am also thinking about a book that I'm reading right now. This is <laughs> we're, not something we're we planned. We're being very Presbyterian today. Um, no, <laughs> I am reading this book um, by Brian Zahn, hmm. who um, I think comes out of um, a more, I, I think he has been kicked out of the white evangelical world. Hmm. Um, and... He, I ordered another one of his books that a friend had quoted from that I really wanted called Postcards from Babylon. So that gives you... I've heard that book. Heard yeah. of that book, yes. But then I was looking at it on Amazon and, you know, their algorithm is, is good. And he wrote this other book called Beauty Will Save the World. And that, um, like, I think a lot in um, my work at The Grove about just aesthetics and beauty and what it's like to be a part of a community where um, beauty is a luxury and like for for kids growing up in my neighborhood where everywhere they go, every physical space is um, just run down. Not that there isn't, I don't know, it's just such a tricky thing to think about and articulate. And, And he's not talking about the aesthetics of beauty Really, but I mean, one of the things I say all the time is, on the one hand, I don't ever want our physical space to take precedence over the ministry that we do or the people that we're serving. So, like, if a kid comes in and spills juice on the floor, like, fine, and you know, or if something gets dinged up, like that, that's fine. Or, but I also feel like I always want ministry, whether it be the sound of it, the look of it, the art of it, to just be more beautiful than it quote, has to be and mm-hmm. what that's about. And so anyway, I just was very intrigued by the title because I don't find, especially, you know, coming out of, um, although my, my card is often pulled these days, the progressive community that's really mm-hmm. is focused on justice, it, you know, beauty is like a, in an, often seen as an indulgence or mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. like you can't, mm-hmm. anyway. But I, but this book has been really transformative um so far and that he's talking a lot about like the fundamental thing about the cross is that it is truly beautiful in the sense that it is the worst crime that humanity can come up with the worst evil because it's deicide right like it's Mm -hmm. killing god and that god's response to that is inherently beautiful, co-suffering, transformative love, and that the, the Christian community is called to be producing and walking in that beautiful vision of an alternative and redeemed world. And he's talking actually a lot in this book of what I'm sure he's talking about in the postcards from Babylon too, is that just two and, 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 um, you know, that, um, Willimon Hauerwas book, Resident Aliens, talks about this as well. Just this idea that the Christian community too often looks at 
you know, the the beauty and power of the world and says, like, we need that mm. so that we can use it for good. And he's just saying, like, no, there's a way of Jesus, and that way of Jesus is beautiful. And when you neglect the beautiful way of Jesus in order to achieve your end, you're you are you are choosing to be of the kingdoms of the world You're instead of, the of the kingdom of, of heaven, right? Yes. Like that's the thing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, just, so, so one thing, I mean, I reading through this book, I'm underlining like every other line, mm-hmm. which defeats the purpose. But I mean, he has this redefinition of evangelical, which I love. Um, I mean, the expression of Protestant Christianity characterized by a dual emphasis on the authority of scripture mm-hmm. and a personal conversion experience. Mm-hmm. Yes, but that that yes. but that's the classic definition of evangelical. Correct, but I mean, obviously, it has, it has been misshaped by my perspective the the lust for power, well, political right. power. But also, people are want to say it has a particular worship culture, it has a particular social location. It ha- I mean, it's just it, it has become that. Correct, but correct. That is the classical the classic or, definition. Of- and the other thing that's interesting about that is. Most people, when they will think evangelical, they will say, okay, then it also has this inherent need to save others, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. however you narrowly define save, Mm -hmm, which usually mm -hmm, means mm -hmm. let them suffer and die Mm -hmm. as long as they pray the personal Mm -hmm, personal prayer of salvation mm -hmm, before mm -hmm, they go, which is mm -hmm. the same definition of evangelicalism that, that slave traders used to turn kidnapping and murdering Africans into a act of mercy mm-hmm. instead of great injustice, right? Like, well, on the Middle Passage, I baptized them all yeah. first, and so now they're saved to eternal life. So anyway, just, I mean, everything, the problem that's distorting American evangelicalism is that it's become far too accommodating to Americanism and the culture of a superpower. We need to bear the form and beauty of the Jesus way and not merely provide a Christianized version of our own cultural assumptions. He's just wow. talking about, like, we yeah. as Christians, we don't we don't know what is ugly and what is beautiful. So when we see people being, you know, exercising power in a particular way, we can't even recognize that Mm. that is ugly. And when we see, you know, a, um, an abandonment of, um, a protectionism of safety of a, you know, suffering that we don't, we don't recognize that as beautiful. We don't, I mean, one of the things, I mean, Whatever, and we talk about this all the time, but, um, you know, we, we think that if we just put good people, i.e. Christian people, in positions of power, then good things will happen, and that's the wilderness temptation of Jesus, right? And yes. we don't believe, I mean, I think the, the huge takeaway from this is that we do not believe in the power of the cross, as Christians. Wow. We don't believe in that. And that's why we reject the way of Jesus. Like we want to use the way of Caesar, the way of empire, and then put a Jesus, you know, he says like a, a Jesus fish bumper sticker on our mm-hmm. car and mm-hmm. that's it. We don't, we believe in political power more than we believe in the power of the cross because the power mm-hmm. of a cross is a particular way of confronting evil, right? Yes, and people absolutely. will say all the time, like people talk about like we can't give up Christian people. People I, I they they're really convinced they they use that quote about like all that is needed for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing and that's why we can't give away our guns. And I'm like, "No, no, you don't understand that the power of the cross is not doing nothing. 
The power of the cross, but the power of the cross is not let's keep our guns so that if someone comes to take us, we'll shoot them dead. I mean, that is not the way of Jesus. You don't see the beauty of the way of Jesus. You don't worship that and you don't believe in the power of the cross. And I think, you know, that's a really interesting thing for me. We're coming up on MLK weekend that MLK has always been, I mean, whatever, a typical white girl growing up in, in the South, like, you know, a hero for me in ways that I didn't really understand who he was or what his legacy was. Mm. And I remember reading in seminary, reading the um, Taylor Branch trilogy and talk in encountering for the first time the kitchen t- table conversion experience mm-hmm. and just totally not understanding it. Like how in the world could he be having this crisis of faith and conversion experience after, yes. you know, he's begun the movement, mm-hmm. after he's a pastor, like what, that that doesn't even make any sense. And I think like, oh, no, no, no. It's, I mean, I think now you go, oh, that was the moment that he realized that political power was not going to solve the problem. Yes. That white people were not going to see the truth and then their innate goodness was not going to yes. lead them to give up their power, right? Like yes. that was the moment that he realized. And he didn't reject creating new laws. He said, <laughs> he said, um, the law can keep you from lynching me, but it can't make you love me. Right. And also, I mean, the law potentially can't keep you from lynching. Right. I mean, like you can, whatever. I just, I mean, it was a really interesting thing for me to say that there's just levels of, we can be on a sincere journey with Jesus, which I is maybe helpful to our earlier conversation mm-hmm. on the walk, to like, you can be on a sincere con- conversion path with Jesus, a sincere following after Jesus. And for a long time, you cannot fully see the beauty and power yes. of the way of what the cross. What you see of Jesus, you truly see but there's so much more to see, and when you when you um, encounter something new, it can create a crisis. Right, and so I just um, anyway, I'm I'm loving this. I'm I'm loving that I, you know, bought the book for one reason, and sort of it immediately mm. smacked me in the face and was like, no, this is more than hospitality. This is more than visual aesthetics. This is more than honoring and dignifying people. This is about saying. You know, there is a beauty that is beneath the surface of appearances that is the way of Jesus Christ. And it's about, I mean, it's about David Hicks, you know, mm-hmm. on the door with his, and one of the most beautiful images. And we kept looking for it for this worship service and couldn't find it. But there is a, um, a man in our congregation named Jason who is in his mid to late 30s, African-American man, has um, is on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. And um, soon after he and his mother joined the church, they we were looking for a ministry for Jason. He actually rings the bell every Sunday to lead us yes. into worship. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, when David was on the door, he used to greet people on the door with David. Wow. And, um, and then they would stay out through the first song of praise, and then they would come in together holding hands. And I was talking to my friend Elizabeth, and she was saying that when she and her family first came to the Grove, and they're sitting there in the pews, and then after the first worship song, because the 
the front door of our church awkwardly because we reoriented reoriented the sanctuary years ago. So the front door of the church is actually right up in front of the worship platform. So when they would come in from greeting people, they would be walking across the front of the church so that everyone could see them. And it's this, you know, older white man, you know, not very tall, very, very thin kind of, you know, stooped over a little bit and then this tall black young Young. man and they're holding hands Mm. and walking in and elizabeth said that when she and her family first came they would watch that every week and think we can't tell who is holding up who wow like it is clear (laughs) wow that's that they are helping one another but we can't tell who is helping you and like what a vision yeah, of yeah. the beauty of the kingdom and the power of weakness and so the glory of the cross. Isn't one definition of the word grace a beautiful action? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if God is gracious, God gives us grace, we are people who receive grace, then that ought to make us a people who engage in beautiful actions. Right, and, and sometimes yeah. those actions don't match what the world says is beautiful. And the world will look at it and go, that that just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. As a matter of like, fact, it's not beautiful. Right, and just the aesthetics of like, why do you want to look at a picture of Jesus suffering on the cross? Because looking at that, mm. the appearance of it is so horrifying. It is so ugly. Yeah. But you have to be able to look past what it looks like yeah. to what it is. What it and what is. it is is beautiful. And Believers, followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be the people who can look past what a thing looks like mm. to discern what it is. That's good. And then call people to what is transformative, to what is beautiful, not just what has a superficial appearance of beauty in the culture. And, you know, that's the idea of being able to look at people and see you know, the inherent beauty and dignity and worthiness of a human created in the image of God for whom Jesus died, right? And that Anyway, so that's, that is our, our, we should, because, you know, Dostoevsky says, like, we, we are attracted to beauty. Humans are attracted yes, to beauty. And, yes. and that's okay. I mean, that's how what we were created. But we need to be attracted to the beauty of what is and not the beauty of what, uh, what appears. That's good. So that's it. I'm wow. out of things to say. Well, what are you preaching? Um, we are preaching on our third guiding principle this week. Um, we believe the power, we believe in the power of God to change lives. Um, and so that, you know, is one of our core beliefs is that, um, I mean, whatever, there's a, we're not who we used to be and that if we're in a community that's full of the Holy Spirit, then we are all being changed. It's, um, it is, you know, Jesus to Nicodemus and being yeah. born again. That yeah. that and that that's something that must happen to all of us. And honestly, I mean, to our earlier conversation, probably more than once in our lifetime, yes. right? Yes. Um, so that that is what I'm preaching about. But now, even in the context of this conversation, I'm thinking maybe initially I was thinking that I was going to preach on. Um, Matthew 8 and Jesus and the man called Legion and casting the demons out. I love that. I do like that text. So I still might preach about that and just this idea that Jesus, you know, went towards someone who could be defined only by his whatever, his Mm -hmm. demonic possession and, you know, saw something else. But now I'm wondering if I 
maybe want to use some of the passages about the call to being born again. Um, I, I might want to do that because I think the danger of preaching that Matthew 8 text is it's so dramatic that so many okay. people sitting yeah. in the in the community will hear it as like, oh, so my job is to be in relationship with people like that instead of thinking, Yeah, you gotta, you got to I... see yourself in the text as the person who has an encounter with Jesus. That transforms you. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that born again text is to be able to mm-hmm. say every single one of us needs to be asking the question, mm-hmm. have we been born again? Not in a spirit of anxiety or fear, mm-hmm. but also to say, like, if you had a really, like, emotional, spiritually powerful experience mm-hmm. 10 years ago, and that to you is... Okay, I was born again. That's your conversion point. Oh, fine. Yes. Like, yes. great. Hallelujah. Yes. Praise yes. the Lord. Yes. But right now, mm-hmm. are you being born again? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Are you being made new? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what does that look like? And if you think you're done, then I don't know. Like, that I think should concern us. Like, what is the Holy Spirit birthing in you right now? And how are you becoming a person that you don't have the power to be or maybe even the desire to be? Well, what you're talking about makes me think of Peter, right? So Peter has this initial call. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, come follow me. And Peter follows. Mm -hmm. Peter goes. He Mm -hmm. leaves and goes with Jesus. He sits under Jesus' teaching. He even says, Lord, if that's you on the water, let me come to yeah. you. And he steps out on the water. Peter was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You are the, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. And yet, and yet, Jesus has to have a moment with Peter where he says, get behind me, me Satan. Satan. Right? Right. Well, and the, Peter's work of transformation isn't even done after the resurrection of Jesus yes. Christ. He has to have another moment when he says, Pentecost. feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Oh, yeah, well, that sheep. too, yes. And then yes. Pentecost, Pentecost moment, yes. but then he has to have his yeah. dream about Cornelius. Cornelius, blah, And not blah, blah. only that. And then he has to be rebuked by Paul, Paul later yes. on. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it's really helpful. I mean, and I think, I mean, even Paul, I, I think, I mean, whatever, this is just what I think, but... I mean, you, I think you can see transformation in Pauline theology oh, you get, as you read through his dangerous, letters, right? You know how much I love Paul. You, well, I love Paul, <laughs> no, too. And I think that, I mean, all of his letters are revelatory yes. or uninspired. Yes. But, I mean, I also just think you can yes. see, you can see, especially if you if you read Acts Paul as mm-hmm. authentic Paul. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can just mm-hmm. see that he's continually mm-hmm. being more and more. And I think the way for Paul... I don't know if this language is right, but I'm going to use the word the way. The way for Paul and the way for Peter are different. Paul's way, the road that he had to travel, seems to me to be all about suffering. In, in, in one of his letter, he, letters, he just gives a list of all the things he went through. Yep. Shipwrecked, beaten, jailed. That's and Philippians, it was, right? I, I think so. No. I think he references in Philippians, but he gives the list somewhere. It may, may be Philippians. I, I can't remember. But One it, of us just preached through the book of Philippians. Oh. And it wasn't me, so bazingas. I'm sure you're right. No, I'm sure you're right. Bazingas. I'm sure you would know if no. it was there. But yeah. I should remember, but I don't. Um, but it seems that it's through his suffering yeah. that brought this um, transformation, this growth, this maturing, right? He... he Grew through what he suffered. Unearned suffering is redemptive, said yeah. uh, MLK. Um, Peter 
gosh, it seems like pe- people just had to get in his face and say, you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they they both had to confront the severity of their ignorance and brokenness and sinfulness. And Peter, I mean, I think Paul has one very dramatic confrontation on the road to Damascus, mm-hmm. obviously, that's transformative of him. I think poor Peter just have, kept having to hit it again and again and again and again, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. both of, again, we are, we are saved by the grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not on our own. So, I mean, you know, the glory of God obviously is visible and inherent and, and fruitful in both of those lives. But I, anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. And we are out of time. We're out of time. Very good. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Sorry, it's my part. Thanks for listening. Um, you should definitely go and listen to Yolando's sermons on the Podbean Podbean? Podbean. Podbean website. Look for Derida Church. I will tell you he won't. I will tell you that he said when we were debriefing Sunday, he was like, the sermon was good on Sunday. So if Yolanda says the sermon was good, then that means it was, it was fantastic. That means it was fantastic. So you should go find it and listen to it. The uh, Derida Church podcast on the Podbean website. Um, if you want to find more about Derida Church, Google it and it'll flip you over to their website. If you want to know more about The Grove, the church I serve, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. And if you want to hear messages from The Grove, you can look on iTunes for The Grove Charlotte podcast. Thanks for listening. It's a great joy for us to make this podcast. We will talk to you next week. Thank you.